Hello and welcome to Two Fat Expats. My name is Kirsty Rice and I am one half of the Two Fat Expats. My partner in crime is Nikki Moffat. Hello, Kirsty Rice. How are you? I didn't get, I forgot to say hello, Nikki Moffat. I missed that bit. <laughs> now, our podcast is in its 201st episode, which is a bit slack because we've been doing it for years and years and years. <laughs> and we've been expats also for years and years and years. I think we have, how many countries between us, Nikki? I think it's 11 or 12. Okay. And probably about 40 years of expat life. God, that makes us sound old. <laughs> oh, okay. So welcome. Nikki, you're in Copenhagen with a big scarf wrapped around your neck and I'm somewhere completely different. I'm in Doha, Qatar on day, are we day three of the World Cup? I think we are. I think, yeah. That's amazing. Yes. Last time we spoke during episode 200, I was in Brisbane and it was 30 something degrees Celsius <laughs> and now it's 30 something degrees Fahrenheit. Okay. Nikki, today's episode is going to have a bit of a, a World Cup feel to it because that seems to be all that's happening in my world at the moment, but also because of algorithms, because I tend to click on all the stories at the moment because of World Cup, that's all I am seeing. You would think that there was nothing else going on in the world. Nikki, you too have been an expat in a World Cup location. I thought it would be interesting to sort of have a chat about what it's like to be an expat in a World Cup location. I'd really like to know sort of how you felt about it and what did South Africa feel like during the World Cup? And did you feel a little bit South African or were you kind of removed from it all? Yeah, so the World Cup in South Africa was amazing. We moved in the middle of 2009 and it was in July 2010. So it was one year after we moved there. When we arrived, we went in the lottery for all the tickets and we had to pay up front thousands of dollars and they said we'll get back to you and we'll refund you for all the tickets you don't you don't get anyway it turns out that we got all the tickets to all the games <laughs> so in the end we didn't on sell them we went to everything we just thought well that money's already gone and we went the country was incredibly different during the period in the lead up and during the world cup we were in durban which was a hub for games which probably made a difference because it was around us all the time Australia was based in Dermot where we were. So I thought, oh, that's fantastic. But I never actually saw any Australian soccer player except um, during their crushing defeat to Germany during the first round when I saw that from the stadium. The, but the whole place was dancing, happy, friendly. There was no fear. Like in South Africa, there are very real security risks and people are always constantly vigilant and it just felt like all that didn't totally disappear but dropped substantially. Everyone was happy and friendly and talking and there was no – everyone you just met with open arms and you talked to anyone in the street at any time about anything and it was just amazing except for the Vuvuzelas, which were a nightmare and bad from our house at all times. <laughs> and my children had – quite a pair on them you know schools and businesses had like wear your S south african jerseys once once a week for like months in advance you know there were so many themed days and events and 
I think to that point, really, in South Africa, more people owned a Springboks jersey than they did a Bafana Bafana jersey. But uh, after 2010, everyone owned a Bafana Bafana jersey too. That's the name of the South African <laughs> football team. So, But uh, they won the World Cup, obviously, based on Mandela's advocacy. Um, they were going up against Morocco. So they became the first African country to host the World Cup. And it was yeah. really important for Mandela to do it um, and it followed on from when they had the Rugby World Cup in 1995 where they took a traditionally, which was before then, a, a almost all-white playing sport and and they they used that to join, to make the country, you know, to bring the country together after the end of apartheid and so many people in 2010 talked about 1995 and how it was different and bigger and more encompassing because soccer is, of course, a much broader played sport. And um, yes. I, I can't, I can't begin to explain the feeling, except it was very similar to being at the Olympics in 2000 in Sydney. So, you know, I felt yes. when I was there, like, like I've talked before about how South Africans don't love Australians. We're not their favourite people. But I really felt totally in- integrated, like proud to be living there. We went to all the activities, all the fan zones, all the games, and it was just amazing. It, it was an amazing, amazing time. And I can only imagine now, 12 years on, how technology and other things have changed all that and made yes. it even more immersive an experience in in particularly in a technologically advanced place hub like Qatar is or Qatar yeah. well there's so many different ways to say that word now because every well, <laughs> how do you say it well if you're local you say Qatar okay and you are Qatari yes uh, but yes in in Australia we like to drag it right out and make it Qatar <laughs> Um, and I think if you're American, you're Qatar. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to ask logistically in South Africa, did they were the games sort of spread out? Like I'm talking hours apart. Like you could drive three hours to go to one stadium or six. Well, you hours had to fly. To yeah, I mean, I mean, they're in all yeah. parts of South Africa, which is an enormous country. So they're in Johannesburg, Cape Town, Durban, uh, Pretoria. There was another hub that I can't remember. Um, but, yeah, like you, you would have to fly or literally drive hours and hours and hours to get to all the stadiums, which I'm sure is a little bit different where you are now. Yes, because, you know, I don't, I don't know how much people know about Qatar, but basically you can drive from one side of Qatar to the other in under two hours. <laughs> it's, not a, it's not a big country. So um, the stadiums are all spread out, but what it's meant is you could easily go to two or three games in a day if you wish to. Yeah, I and mean, totally not yeah. possible in South Africa. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's funny, isn't it? How I, I would say Qatar would have to be like the smallest in land size of um, countries they would have ever ever conducted the World Cup and yep. it would be quite unique in that in that way that you could go to several different stadiums, you know, if you wanted to. I did meet someone yesterday who was going to 18 games while they were here, which wow. I was just, I know. How much I must know. that have cost? Also? I know. <laughs> I reckon you're saving up for the whole four years, aren't you, to yeah. do that. But but you know, having said that, we're doing something. So the sport that I am nuts about is Australian rules football. And so I have to keep putting it into context of yes, what if, would this be like yeah. for me? You know, this would be like having a grand final every day. You know, yes. it would be massive. Um, 
And I'm so jealous of football slash soccer, depending from where you're from. And on that, Nikki, have you seen that ad that the Americans have done about um, it's for what we would call chips and what the English would call crisps? So it's Lay's and all those different brands of um, chips, but it's got David Beckham and an American uh, footballer in it, and it's absolutely hysterical. But it's all about, you know, you say cookie, I say biscuit, you say crisps, I say chips, you call it football, I call it soccer. And and it's that whole disagreement between soccer and football. I'm going to add the um, commercial into our show notes because it is really, it just gives you a good giggle and makes you feel good. So, Nikki, thank you for telling me all about that. That definitely gives me a better idea. And I, I can see great similarities here yeah. too. So my question to you would be how do you or would you defend your host country when it comes to when it becomes the focus of unfriendly press or media based on the things that you've just talked about um because we know that if you live in the world even if it's not in your algorithm the world cup and qatar is is the focus of a lot of unfriendly press and a lot and you know it it sort of stems from FIFA as well so every you know every few years the press goes on about FIFA and how terrible it is and then forgets about it until this situation comes up again so but but really it's sort of it's it's it started at FIFA and then it's it's ended right up where you are yeah that's a really good point because I don't think I think about FIFA I mean I am not uh you know football slash soccer fan let's let's just put that out there so you know I'm not someone that's following that information very closely so I couldn't comment accurately on my thoughts or views or any of that but I could say just from living here and what I've seen I have to say Nikki I have been blown away by the press um, and just the Western press mainly. Obviously, you're going to get very different local press than you would get from Western press. And it has really shown me that if one person jumps on something, how easy it is for someone to then just proceed with false information, taking it as fact. And I don't know whether that's something that is because of the strain of what journalists are under now, because, you know, they're all far more short staffed and they've all got to produce things faster and maybe they don't have the same researchers. I don't know. But back to, back to FIFA. Um, you know, I know obviously reading the paper, nobody, uh, how could you ever miss that people think that Qatar, you know, paid or bribed or did whatever to get the World Cup. And I know in Australia there was a lot of press about it at the time because Australia was also up for the bid and Australia could not believe that they didn't get it and Qatar did because they saw themselves as such a better location to have it because they're Australia and, you know, they used Kylie Minogue and Hugh Jackman and how couldn't you fall for that? But I think... You know, I can't comment on whether Qatar did um, bribe or or didn't, but what I do think is maybe they had to. And I think after watching the press and listening to the things I've listened to, I can remember Sheikh Moza who, so when I moved here 12 years ago, we had a different emir and he his his son is now the emir. Mm. So I will refer to him as the father emir because that's what everybody calls him, the father emir. The father emir was married to Sheikh is married to Sheikh Moza. 
And she was the woman who did the presentation all those years ago. And and one of the things she said was, if not now, when? And what she was saying was, when are we ever going to get a chance? Because you will always keep throwing these things back to us that we're not a football nation, that the weather's too hot, that, you know, we can't do it at the right time. But then does that mean we never, ever get to do it? because of that like and is this a world game and there has never been like you were saying South Africa was the first African country well Qatar is the first Arab country do you know and so that was sort of their argument too of well how long do we have to wait and what what do we have to do so I can't comment on the bribe whether it's right it's wrong whatever everybody can make their own assumptions I think the fact that Qatar is the richest country in the world will mean that people will definitely jump to a conclusion that that had to be it. Um, every and- time the World Cup is, is awarded and every time the Olympics are awarded, people say that the, the people who made the decisions were bribed. So I don't think it's anything new. Yeah. Like these global sporting events attract such commentary every single time. Yes. Yeah, they do. And, you know, Nikki, yes, two days ago before the opening game, there was a story that was wide, widely reported that Qatar had bribed Ecuador to lose and that they had paid the players, you know, $10 million to throw the game. Well, Ecuador won and they won quite convincingly. <laughs> so sometimes, you know, you're just reading and once one person reports a story, well, then 30 other outlets can just report that that person reported that story, you know, according to whatever. So the things that you do keep hearing is that, you know, they they shouldn't have got it because of the weather, because they're not a footballing nation, which is odd because Qatar actually is the current champion of the Asian Cup and they will host the Asian Cup next year. So maybe people who call them not a footballing nation think that they're not their footballing world, mm. do you know, because they don't match their footballing world because they're over here in Asia. And obviously the big one is migrant workers. And that is, you know, that is something Qatar is going to have to live with forever and will never, ever shake, I don't think, because of their history and because of how Qatar has to be built. You and I have talked about this before in that there are 3 million people living in Qatar and only 350,000 of them are Qatari. So that means if you want people to play in your soccer team, if you want people to jump your high jump at the Olympics, if you want people to build your stadiums, you're going to have to bring in people from anywhere because you have a very small population now the two numbers because I thought I'm I'm actually going to go and see where these numbers sort of started from and because every news story leads with these two numbers they say that amnesty uh, says that there were 15,000 migrant workers that died building the stadium and the guardian newspaper says there were 6,500 now obviously one is too many you don't want anyone to die on a work site in that way, away from home, in a terrible condition. 
if you look at the figures, they're actually referring to the non-Qataris of various nationalities in various occupations and they're telling you that that's how many people died between 2010 and 2019. And it probably matches, if you're going by that number, the expected number of a country in its size and its demographic. Now, where I got that information from was from the World Health Organization, who said that the general mortality rates for migrant workers in Qatar are lower than they are in their home countries, because you've got to think of where these guys, mainly men, have come from, why they've come to Qatar, and the countries, like the conditions that they have had to live in, in their current countries. So here's the thing. You can't deny that there have been sort of particular cardiac and respiratory problems amongst those workers. There was a study of Nepalese workers where they went home. um, So they did, uh, I I think the study had 80 people, three quarters of them were people that had been to Qatar and the other quarter were people that had been back from Malaysia. And these were people that had become ill when they'd come home. Mm -hmm. And it is, it's all about working in heat because what that does to your heart and also not having enough access to water and what that does to your kidneys. There is a real issue of, of what you have to do to work in those conditions, how you need to look after your workers. But I also think, Nikki, I've just been to Thailand and looked at Thailand and looked at the conditions where people were working in and spoken to Thai people who were very upset with their current conditions where they live. And you and I, well, maybe not so much because you've done you've done some very nice countries um, in your travels, right? But I have seen some terrible things living in Indonesia, Malaysia, Libya here of the disparity of the wealthy and the not so wealthy. Yeah, I've seen that in many countries too. I'd say Europe's the first yes. time I haven't really seen that as much. Yeah. And so, you know, yeah, I, I almost think there's some naivety when I listen to people in the West talk about what's wrong because I think why aren't they asking why these people keep coming back, you know, but th- that it's the fact that 80% of South Asians live on less than $5.50 a day. And so when they see that they can earn thousands of dollars in Qatar, they jump to it because they're trying to get themselves out of extreme poverty. And that's what's wrong with the world. <laughs> but I mean, I'm not I'm not telling anything, anybody anything they don't know. But I, I just think with this extreme inequality and worldwide poverty are not new problems. And how you're going to fix this yeah. is the issue. It's just easy to highlight them in a situation like this. So when there's a yeah. – they don't get highlighted all the time because it's not interesting or fun or sexy to highlight them because they're hard problems that are difficult to solve. And That's right. the world is not black and white. There's a lot of grey going on. And so – but in a yeah. situation like this, it's easy to say, oh, hi, here we are in Qatar and guess what? You know, this is a problem. Yeah. I've just discovered this problem. Yeah. And it's the false reporting that has really, I want to say it's really changed how I feel now about jumping on a, jumping on a cause. You know, yesterday I read that um, Kateri men aren't coping because they're not used to seeing Western women in Western dress. It's like, 
Guys, these guys are surrounded by Western women. They work with Western women. Do you know Western women come and work as lawyers and doctors and nurses? And, you know, there are plenty of Western women in Qatar walking around in their Lululemon and going to F45 fitness. Do you know, it's, it's this, it's the way that Qatar has been projected. You know, there is always this perception that any woman who covers is oppressed and I think well, that's crazy like you obviously don't know anyone that covers if you feel that every woman who covers is oppressed because that's a cultural choice that she has made so I, I just think there's so many so much false reporting at the moment the whole thing with the beer in the stadiums just about did my head in which was you know a great marketing exercise from Budweiser as well with their tweet of, you know, oh, this is awkward because everybody talked about their tweet of, oh, this is awkward. So they cancelled having beer around the perimeters of the stadiums because they want people to to either, you're either going to have your beers in the corporate boxes or in the, you know, in the zones within the stadiums or you're going to have it in the fan zones or you're going to go to a hotel and drink it. But they didn't want people drinking around the perimeters. Now, in a in a country where alcohol, you need a licence to buy alcohol, I'm kind of, I mean, I'm still absolutely dying that I'm seeing pictures of my friends standing on, on the corniche drinking beers because this is not the Qatar that I've been living in for 12 years. Like seeing all of, you know, just an explosion of of people living how they would live in their Western world. And I think that's that's the other thing that's really interesting is that people jump up and down and 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 say, you know, why can't I live like I live at home? Because you're not at home. You've gone to Qatar. Yeah. You know, and, and and you're meant to have come here a, to watch the football, but also to learn something. Anyway, I have taught for a long, long time, but it was something that was sort of passionate to me because I think it is really sad what has been missed um, in this World Cup in that uh, Qatar has had a real focus on this World Cup being far more accessible for people with disabilities. So they have a lot of sensory rooms that people can go into yep. that have sensory issues and mm-hmm. still appreciate. And so the face of the World Cup has been a guy called Ghanem Al Mufta. And I will put Ghanem's uh, Instagram and YouTube in our notes for people to have a look at. But Ghanem is like a huge personality here in Qatar and he is an advocate for disability rights. And he has something called caudal regressual syndrome. So he basically has no bottom half of his body. He's just the top half. And he was the star of the show uh, in that he was the one sitting there with Morgan Freeman talking about, you know, that we shouldn't, I think he said what Morgan Freeman said what unites us is so much bigger than what divides us so also there was a guy called Fahad Al-Kabasi who is um, a Qatari singer who is well worth having a look at Nikki like he is well worth I'm talking to hubba hubba um, so there were things like that, that that the women started the women led the way in the opening ceremony and they were the ones to come out first and there was a meaning in that that they had a woman with a batula which is when you see the Arab women with those gold masks they almost look like masquerade masks that they mm-hmm. put up and there's a huge history to those 
And and that's the thing is that now that all these people are here, my favorite thing that I keep seeing is the most common thing that people are wearing here is you know how Kateri men wear those white thobes and they wear yep. the gutra on top of their head. So all the different countries have made their own thobes. <laughs> so there are Australians have got green and gold thobes, the Argentinians have got pale blue and white thobes. And so it is fantastic because you just keep seeing groups and groups of people walking around with these thobes. But of course, none of them can put their headgear on properly. Like no, they don't I'm know how to do it. I'm loving all the videos of all the people <laughs> yes. in the street helping them put their headgear on. Yes. And it truly is everywhere you look is some cattery guy walking up to some other guy <laughs> saying, do you want, do you want me to do that properly for you? So uh, those videos and, and seeing that, I saw it last night. I went to go and play golf and there was obviously a guy who's visiting and he'd, he'd dressed up and a cattery guy from at the golf club walked up to him and said, do you want me to do that properly for you? And it was just beautiful. And they had a big hug at the end of it. Now, I think isn't that what this is all meant to be about? That yes, and yeah. that's what it's about, and that's why sport. You know, they say you know people who are anti-sport are very anti it, but it's big sporting yeah. events where you have a deep passion for something, and then you it's a byproduct that you learn and appreciate and value all these other new things that you just so happen to come across. That's right, and that you know we've got friends from home that are here, and and their eleven-year-old son was in the back of the car yesterday and I said to him oh do you see that building see the thing up the top that's a minaret and that's where the call the man stands for the call to prayer you know to do it and um he said what's that building and I said it's a mosque and he said what's a mosque (laughs) so there would be a lot of people here that would be saying what's that building yeah and there would be a lot of people that would maybe uh, because of how Arab people are um, shown perceived, in yeah. Western movies and perceived, there will be a lot of people now that are no longer scared when they see people in a buyers and thobes and that they will know that they are approachable and will give you a hug and teach you how to do it properly. Do you know, there is so much good in this. I have never seen my two worlds collide ever and it really occurred to me at the opening. I was like, Wow. It was really special. Anyway, that's enough. I have harped on. Nikki, tell us your three favourite things. Well, you know, I think it's worth having the discussion because you're in a really unique position in that you have, and we talked about last year, uh, last last year, talked about last week in the, <laughs> the longevity that you've had in being there for 12 years. So you've seen incredible changes and you've, you've also sort of seen people's attitudes and now people that you hang out with when you're in Australia at your beach house are hang are there hanging out with you (laughs) and I remember when I was in Australia with you I was introduced to one of them and he said you know thanks for looking after Kirsty you know when she's not here I was like I don't live anywhere near Kirsty you know like (laughs) he just seemed to think that once you leave the country you and I are in the same place we're not but sort of there's your Australian life and there's your overseas life and now he is seeing your overseas life and he will know that I am yes. not there but you know like that, yes. that, that it's <laughs> that, that it's just and it's forever now because you've always said you know these I don't think these people that I sit and have wines with on the balcony have any concept of what no. sitting and having a wine on the balcony is like 
in my other home. Yes. And so now they will yeah. have that. And that is so special because not many people in your life get to to do that and you don't get to show that. And so I yes. also think that's really special as well. So uh, what are my three favourite things? Well, again, we've had so long since we, <laughs> we're sort of playing catch up on some very old stuff, but I will say Heartbreak High on Netflix. Kirsty, have you seen it? It's taking Australian high schools around the world. No, but my son has See, and he loves he it. He and I, we're, we're at one without – it is really amazing. The diversity and inclusion in it is incredible and the, the way they've done yes. it, it's – I just – I really appreciate it. They've got an actor who's autistic yep. playing an autistic character, but it's not the Sheldon Cooper kind. Like, first of all, she's female, she's um, autistic, she's creative. You know, it's not the math, science-driven person. Yep. And it just shows a lot more of the sensory processing and the overall overwhelm and things like that. And But obviously they just pick up on high school themes and it's a lot. There's a lot going on. But yeah. I, I think it's a really great – I remember the original Heartbreak High. I think it was a movie or ages Claudia and ages Kavan, ago. Yeah. I remember from Heartbreak High. Yeah. But, but it's, uh, wasn't it's, it Alex Demetrius? Yeah, I think it was. God, yeah, Alex Demetrius. how is it that I can remember that <laughs> how but do I you can't remember that? Anyway, I think oh it's a gosh. great series and it's it's very much in the, the YA genre, the young adult genre, which my, is my – I think the biggest compliment it had uh, that my son loved about it was he said, Mum, they have the diversity but they make no reference to the diversity. Correct. Nobody says, you know, oh, now we're going to do a story about the gay kid. Now we're going to do a story about the that brown kid. Yeah, it, it's just not talked about. It's just – predict you are just showing that that's what's going on um and he loved it absolutely loved that's it. exactly right it's exactly right well done henry oh, he and i we could do some tv commentary together <laughs> you could <laughs> so that was one for me uh, another one was that i haven't talked about yet the handmaid's tale season five it's come and gone in the time that we've had this to talk about it i love a bit of handmaid's tale it was quite good. It, it was good. People talked about whether it was as good, not as good as past seasons. I mean, it's getting ready to wrap up. Margaret Atwood did write a follow-up. She wrote a sequel book, which they're trying to sort of tie into because obviously The Handmaid's Tale, the original novel, finishes after season one and now we're into season five. So there's all sorts of things going on that no one had any idea about. But it's, you know, Elizabeth Moss is an incredible actress and – the cast just continues to be great and I really enjoyed it and it deserves a special shout-out because it's one of the things I always watch as soon as it comes up and I listen to the podcast, follow-up podcast about it. The nice. third one I'm going to say, and my husband said to me last week, or when he listened to the 200th episode, as he always does, bless him, I can't believe you're not talking about peripheral. Everyone should be talking about peripheral. He said no one cares about the crown. I said, I think our audience is more probably watching The Crown than Peripheral. He's like, no, you must talk about it. And it's true. I started watching it when I was in Australia with, with my uh, friends and after dinner we'd watch a TV show together. So it's based on a novel of the same name apparently and it's sort of from the creators of Westworld so that gives you an idea if you ever watched any Westworld stuff. But basically right. it, it brings together two time periods, so the near future rural America and a, a far futuristic form of London. And someone in the near oh. future uh, rural America plays what they do to, to make a bit of money is they play video games called Sims, which are simulations. And so they put on like yeah. a virtual reality headset and go into a simulation. But it turns out that this particular simulation is taking them 
into the future where they inhabit a body of themselves in the future, which is basically like a just a nothing robot that stands around till their mind goes there when they put the headset on. And so, watch that. Yeah, it's it's really quite good. And um, you know, it's it's now the reason I'm saying I could watch that is you know that my thing is I can only watch things that I believe could be real and that is not something that I believe could be real but I love the idea like the premise of it the premise of it is quite amazing and I think that's what gets you in right so you're watching this sort of show in rural America which could be any kind of show in rural America you know sort of you know yeah and then all of a sudden you're in futuristic London with all these people and all this terminology and technology that you just have no concept of and then of course the two worlds collide and future London comes back to try and you know kill them because they're obviously going to do something amazing now that all happens very early on I'm not um I'm not (laughs) giving anything away but but it is very very it's just good and it just really reels you in and it's one of the ones that they're releasing week by week so yeah. you have to wait a week for the next episode, which I think more more shows are going to at the moment, and it, it yeah. kind of creates a bit of a bit of buzz, and it you know you you sit down with somebody or yourself and you make the time to watch it. Like it's not a, oh I'll just watch that all in one go later or whatever. So I, I yes no peripheral on yeah. Prime. Make a note. Yeah. <laughs> all right. So that what was three, you? wasn't it? Yeah, yes, that was three. Okay, so. Uh, my number one, sticking to the world of uh, Qatar and Doha, but I just was fascinated. You know, when you see something, you know, pop up that's a podcast yep. I listen to often is the documentary on BBC. Yep. And then up popped in my feed the Real Housewives of Doha, and I was like, oh, wow, the the documentary's come to Doha, and they had. And my immediate thought was, oh no, they're going to do like a expat housewives you know and just show all these people that are nowhere near my world it wasn't it was real cattery women in their homes and how they lived and I absolutely I think if you are interested in what it's like to be a cattery woman and live in Doha definitely go and have a listen because I think you might you might become a you know a bit balanced in in your thoughts one of the women you can tell um, gets is very short with the uh, yeah comment, the person who's running the show the interviewer yeah and I uh, yeah and I think look to to give people an idea I think if you're cattery at the moment you have to have a really thick skin because everybody decides that you are a particular type of person and um, there has been an incredible amount of of racism um, and Islamophobia that's been directed towards Qataris in, I'm not sure if anyone saw the Charlie Hedbo um, uh, cartoon which yep. depicted soccer players in burkas with knives and there's been a lot of that, right? There's been several cartoons that have been along the same vein. Um, so I think you'd be a little bit prickly and, of course, the the question that everyone wants to know is, you know, are you oppressed and uh, about current laws in Qatar? And the one thing I was going to say is when people talk about laws in Qatar and them being, you know, prehistoric and whatever, they are in 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 a Western world. They are. And so... I always think about when I grew up in the 70s, Nikki, we didn't wear seatbelts. My mum didn't wear a seatbelt, neither did my dad. We did long-haul drives. We all sat jumping around in the back. (laughs) 
I went home from the hospital in a bassinet that wasn't even attached to anything, do you know? And my mum, when seatbelts came in, I remember my mum got three fines before she finally submitted to wearing a seatbelt. Now, now I could not imagine her not wearing a seatbelt, right? So when I came to Qatar, there were no rules about wearing a seatbelt. And so it was this whole thing of going kind of back in time. People smoked in inside restaurants and malls and things like it was a different socially it was a very different place now you come to Qatar and there are wear your seatbelt signs absolutely everywhere there is definitely no smoking in restaurants you have to go outside and all the rules have changed you know where we're kind of slowly moving along to a different world so I think you know Australia didn't allow gay marriage not that long ago And now they do, and we will forget that they didn't allow and we will go on. And I do think in Qatar there are a large amount of young people who are just biding their time for laws to change and things to change over time. And in the meantime, they're just going to, you know, edge their way along with their older population. So that is one thing that I would really like people to sort of think about when they're there is when you're hounding people saying, yes, but you can't travel without, you know, your father's permission or you can't do this without your husband's permission or whatever. I tell you, the women that I see driving around in their Maseratis. <laughs> they look all right. Probably, they look all right. Life I have looks to say good. you sent that to me because I sent you one on the Rest is History yes. podcast and you, about Qatar and you sent yeah, me this one back. That. And then yeah. I, I forwarded this one that you sent to me to loads of people because I had the conversation yeah. with a lot of them because when I was in Australia they're saying, oh, you know, the World Cup, you know, it shouldn't be in Qatar. I'm like, should it? Like, really? And I and I would sort of defend and they're saying, oh, yeah, but you're saying that because of Kirsty and she's living there. And I was like, yeah, no, come on, <laughs> let's talk, let's have the conversation. And so uh, with a lot of these people I just forwarded this this uh, podcast and I said, listen to this, listen to yeah. this. Like the world is grey, it's, it's not black and white. And a lot of those yeah. people talk about you know, being feeling very free, but then also admitting that, you know, there can be situations where it cannot be. If your family is yes. against something, your family is in more control than of you than the government yeah. is. And yeah. isn't there people in the world that want your family to be more in control of you than your government <laughs> is? I mean, that rings some bells, but I'm just saying, yeah. you know, like it, it's it, there yeah. are swings and roundabouts and, yeah, anyway, yeah. I thought it was a great yeah. podcast. Yeah, I thought it was really good. The other one is also old and everyone's talked about it and that was Good Luck to You, Leo Grande. Did you end up watching it, Nikki? I haven't watched it yet, no, because it was only at the movies, I oh. think. I haven't been to see it. You're right. I think you can – I think I watched it maybe even at home. I think it's on one of those streaming, streaming services okay. now. Um, so I just wanted to say that Emma Thompson is just incredible in that one. Um, you know, I thought it was sort of all about, well, I guess it is. It's all about her being able to, sorry, if you've got kids in the car, orgasm. Um, and that she was married to someone in a fairly, you know, there wasn't a lot of lust or, or excitement. So the, the guy who plays the, um, a sex worker is a guy called Daryl McCormack. Now he was in Bad Sisters, you know the Irish uh, series that yes. was on. Love Bad uh, Sisters. Apple. I loved Bad Sisters too, and I watched him all through Bad Sisters, going, "Oh yeah, he's he's cute," you know, he, as in he's a nice, you know, Looking guy. And yeah. His character was very appealing. 
Oh my gosh, I don't know. Leo Grande, you see him in a whole different light. He's far more than cute. <laughs> and um he's he's brilliant. It is just the story is great. But Emma Thompson, she just at the end of it cuz you never ever actually see any um sex scenes. Yep. Um there's a whole lot of conversation. But what you do see right at the end is a full frontal nude Emma Thompson standing in a mirror looking at her body. Yep. And I thought, wow, like it was great because I think it just normalised uh, a six. She's in great shape, but she's yeah. got a normal 60-year-old woman's body. Um, but it didn't give you the sexy time of yes. she wasn't she, – you could tell she was in control of that scene. No one was – making her do that scene for other people's entertainment. I just thought it was absolutely brilliant. And then my third one is Phantom of the Open. Now, I love this, but my friend Penny (laughs) fell asleep in it. So (laughs) I've heard this discussed. I'm I'm intrigued. I'm not sure whether I'd really watch it, but, you know, maybe. Yeah, it's very British. It's very British. It's it's the true story of Morris Flickcroft who – had never played golf and managed to enter himself into the British Open and really believed that, you know, he he entered because he thought he might win the money and he worked down the mines and, uh, you know, this was going to be his way. And it is it is cute in that really cute, you know, English-British way of telling a story. My favourite phrase that he says to his long-suffering wife um, throughout it all because she is a woman that just lets him go and pursue his dreams and, you know, they've got no money and, you know, they're always having to make do and it's a hard life. But there there is a beautiful tale that happens at the end and I'm not going to ruin it, but he does a toast to her and he says, if life were a cup of tea, you'd be the sugar. Oh. Yeah, I thought that was really sweet. And I think he has something like seven teaspoons of sugar in his tea. That's actually a true (laughs) thing. thing. Um, But, yeah, because it's a true story, it's beautiful. I really, really enjoyed it. But, but yes, my friend Penny did fall asleep in the first, you know, 15 minutes, so it may not be for everybody. (laughs) All right, Kirsty. so lovely to have this catch-up. And are you going to any World Cup matches in the near future? Tonight. So tonight... I am going to see France v Australia, um, which will be absolutely incredible. And yeah, I've got two people from, or three people from my world at home that are here, uh, all staying in different places that will also be in the stadium. So that'll make it really special. I don't think we've got a chance in no. <laughs> a snowflakes uh, if, against France, but who knows? We could be the we could be the hidden, you know, when everyone, there's no expectation of you. And so yes, sometimes yes. you're okay. But yeah, I don't know. But I, I'm just so excited to go to a World Cup event. And then I'm going to see Wales v England, which I'm really, really looking forward to, especially, did you see that? Oh, what's his name? Michael Sheen. Did you see him doing the uh, the giddy up for the Wales team and come on all year? Oh, God, that's another thing I'm going to have to attach now that I mentioned it. So, yeah, Michael Sheen, who I always think of as the guy who played Tony Blair in The Queen, he he is Welsh and he he did a fantastic message, you know, 
to to the players about being small and getting big and whatever. It's really, really good. So I'll attach that one as well. God, I'm really going to have to go and find some links for this one, Nikki. <laughs> uh, yeah, so, yeah, I've got, got four games that we're going to. Excellent. Okay, well, great to chat. And now we're back on a roll for our regular programming. So we'll speak again next week. Okay, see you next week. Bye-bye.